This episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be brought to you by our friends over at Mystery Ranch, built for the mission. Yeah. Mystery Ranch, let me tell you, they have been giving back to the community, the wildland fire community for a hell of a long time, and they're going to keep continuing to do so. Why do I appreciate them so much? Well, it's because they give a shit. I mean, they give a shit so much that they're even throwing out thousand dollar scholarships for you to advance your wildland fire career with some professional development. If you haven't checked out the Backbone Series scholarship, well, I highly suggest that you do it. Because if you don't, well, you're just leaving money on the table. Yeah, the Mystery Ranch Backbone Series Scholarship is open to anybody who's telling the wildland firefighting story from their perspective. And if it's going to be one of those things that's thoughtful, well put together, and not written in crayon, well, you'll have one of those opportunities to win one of these $1,000 grants. So go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out because they give back to the community in a huge way and they want you to succeed. In fact, they're relying on you as well. In fact, check this out. So the hotshot uh, pack, the uh, pack that we all come to love and know so well for, you know, six to eight months out of the year. Well, that was actually built by the boots on the ground. Yeah. Little uh, story. Uh, Dana Gleason, the uh, founder, the OG, if you will, of Mystery Ranch, he went down to uh, SoCal, tied in with a couple of South Ops shot crews, and he said, hey, how can we make going to work a little bit better for you? Well, those two hotshot crews, they poured in their heart and soul and helped develop what you have on your back now. So they are all about giving back to the community and working with the community. So if you want to find out more, go over to www.mysteryranch.com and check it out and make sure to check out that Backbone series. It is awesome. Once again, www.mysteryranch.com. Go check it out. The Anchor Point Podcast is also going to be brought to you by our premier coffee sponsor, and that's going to be none other than Hotshot Brewery. It's kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause, and a portion of the proceeds will always go back to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation. What else do they do? Well, they've done it. They've they've done quite a bit, and they continue to do so. They actually make all of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right, and they have a full line of Wildland Firefighter-themed apparel to help rep that wildland firefighter culture. Plus, on top of that, check this out. If you want to get some Anchor Point swag, well, head over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and there you can find all the kick-ass coffee, all the swag, all the apparel, and all of the tools of the trade to get your morning started off right. Once again, that is www.hotshotbrewing.com. Go check them out. And last but not least, the Anchor Point Podcast is, well, they're not sponsored by, they're not brought to you by, but it is one of those close relationships I have with Bethany over there at the American Wildfire Experience. And uh, yeah, I just want to show her some love for as long as I possibly can because I believe in her cause and I believe in her mission and she's got some rad stuff going on. And if you don't know what the American Wildfire Experience is, well, they house the Smoky Generation. And I know for a fact, a lot of people out there have seen that rolling around. It's pretty freaking awesome. What it is, is basically a digital storytelling platform uh, telling the story of wildland fire. There's quite literally, there's there has to be like over 250 of these stories out there now, but it's preserving the legacy of the uh, folks in the field and the story of wildland fire. And some of these stories even date back to the 1940s. It's pretty freaking bitching. So if you want a little history lesson, or if you want to sign up for the Smoky Generation grant program, if you got a compelling story and you're telling the story of wildland fire through the lens of a camera, a video camera or a still camera through a blog, through some animations. There was this one dude out there who made uh, we move mountains with spoons and it's freaking kick ass. And they're a smoky generation grant recipient. Yeah. 
Sky's the limit. Tell the story. It's freaking awesome. Anyways, if you want to find out more, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and you can check it all out. Once again, www.wildfireexperience.org. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. The views and opinions of this podcast do not reflect the views and opinions of the United States government, the Department of the Interior, the Department of Defense, the Department of Agriculture, the United States Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or any private, municipal, county, or state firefighting organization, any law enforcement agency, any medical provider, or any contractor employed by any federal agency. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back. Hope everybody's doing well. And I hope those folks that are returning from Canada, well, for the folks that are over in the soggy side of Canada, well, I hope your feet are dry finally. And for the folks that were on the not so dry side of Canada, well, uh, looks like you're going to be starting to return home pretty soon. And lower 48 is starting to dry out. Yeah, looks like it's uh, starting to pop off at least. But your boots will be dry. And it looks like fire season is finally starting to start. And yeah, like I said, hurry up and wait. It's not a matter of if the fuels uh, decide to dry out, but more of a matter of when. So hope everybody's doing well. Anyways, today's episode is going to be a pretty cool episode. I've actually got a gentleman who is out of the Nez Pierce Clearwater National Forest. He's got 21 years in fire, and uh, he's also been a former smoke jumper, and he also worked for ODF and the Forest Service and the BLM and the National Park Service, and he's got a pretty dynamic and uh, extensive background. Anyways, he is a huge proponent of being prepared and having the right gear and getting the proper training because you never know when you're going to use it and his story is one of those cases might have heard it in the news but uh the gentleman we're about to interview is the gentleman who actually made the save on a 91 year old patient who uh had his car go off the road and into the, practically the middle of the Loxaw river over there in idaho yeah pretty wild man but anyways this dude is awesome. He's got a hell of a story to tell. And I think you should listen because you never know when you're training and preparedness and the right gear, having that stuff on you, when that will come in handy. Because you never know. So with that, I'd like to introduce my good friend, JT Soar. Welcome to The Anchor Point. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast. Today on the show, I've got my good friend, JT Soar. Dude, what's up? Making saves? What's going on here? <laughs> oh, man, just another day on the river. Just another day, huh? Nice, dude. So tell us about yourself, man. Hey, so uh, I'm currently the superintendent for the Selway uh, Type 1 Wildland Fire Module out of Moose Creek Ranger District on the Nez Perce Clearwater. I've been here like a year. Um Super stoked to be right on the sailway, right on the locksaw, um, and, and kind of back in some of my old stomping grounds in Idaho. Um, originally from Oregon, grew up in John Day. Uh, both my parents were in fire for the Forest Service. I spent most of my summers on the lookout with my mom or hanging out at like my dad's office, uh, who's doing fuels and, and FMO stuff. Um, my first fire was literally when I was eight. Uh, we had a fire come up the hill at our house. Oh yeah. Damn. Dude. And, uh, 
dad just happened to be coming in from the woods at the right time. We just got back from a vacation with my mom and, and some other friends and fire truck like rolls by our house and he's like, it's closer to the neighbors. We got to go there first. So mom starts pulling hose and I like literally ran into my room, pulled on my green pants and my hiking boots and my yellow shirt that mom made for me. And about time dad rolled home, uh, we, we snagged like Pulaski and a shovel and went down the hill to try to hit it. And in the cheatgrass, it just, you know, you can do much with two hand tools. So that was like my first time going in the black and, <laughs> um, do crazy, crazy afternoon. Got to like do some mop up in my yard with the, the hill attack crew who came over, uh, you know, all the, all the guys from the forest I knew at the time. So that was like my true introduction to getting after some fire, uh, which just doomed me for the rest of my life. Obviously that's where you caught the uh, fire bug, huh? Like you must've been your Fisher price, yellow and greens on eight years old. Pretty much. <laughs> that's wild, dude. And it was bad enough. Like, you know, I'd have friends over and we'd like go dig line around the house. Like I was just absolutely warped from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but what a cool way to, to grow up and have that like background coming into a career too. Yeah. That's pretty badass, dude. I mean, that's kind of cool. Like you don't hear that kind of backstory, like very, very often, you know, I mean, if no. people like doing like their first IA with like their, I don't know, like helping out, you know, on their own property, but that's a lot different than, you know, doing an IA when you're eight years old, <laughs> practically right. dude, wild man. So JT, you've been in the kind of like in the media, you get like a, like a, a little bit of attention recently, dude. And, uh, I just want to say that is some badass stuff. I've kind of been following along with uh, the story arc and what happened that day, but why don't you kind of give like a little bit of insight to like why you've been in the news and all that other stuff, dude, make it saves. It's awesome. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, I was just driving, driving back from my office back to Missoula last week and, um, strangely enough, like my brother lives in Missoula. He jumps over here and we spend a lot of time on the river. Um, you know, early season when we can, while the water's good. And so I had my boat, uh, had my pack raft, had all my gear thinking another weekend on the river with, with the bro. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came around the corner there's some, there's some trucks pulled off and my buddy, Jeff, uh, who does develop direct for the forest service here on the district, uh, I saw his truck and I literally just had a question for him. Like I had no idea what was going on and I just pulled up to his truck and he had kind of like this, you know, very excited look on his face. And he's like, dude, do you have your boat? And I'm like, yeah. Like, what's up? He's like, there's a, a car off the side. They're like 50 feet out in the river. Uh, it's got one pasture. He's like an, an older gentleman. And we've been trying to flag somebody out the boat for like half an hour. Like he's already been out there for like 30, 40 minutes. Oh shit. And this um, is cold water too. This is like, yeah, this is like locksaw runoff. Like it's been coming down. Thankfully it wasn't at like 18 or 20 K like it, it spikes at. Um, like, but yeah, like, feet per second, right? Yes, sir. Yeah. Or they go by per second or minute on river. Like uh, cubic feet per second. Per feet per second. Okay. Yep. So, and like, just to, to set that up, like uh low water for the river, like, like unrunnable is like less than a thousand. Uh, medium water is like 10,000. That's like spicy, but you know, very doable. And then high water is like 20 plus. Yeah. Um, and that's like, it's raftable, but it's like, no rocks are showing everything's crazy fast. So luckily we're, we're at about 5,000 that day and there were some rocks sticking out in like not a sketchy place. So this, this guy apparently, uh, you know, cut a corner too tight, dropped a tire into the gravel and it pulled and in, huh? pretty much and he, about 20 feet down the bank, straight into the water. Luckily, like 
no trees, no boulders. And when I first got out to him, he was like, yeah, you know, I, I was spinning circles out here like a bobber just floating down the river. So uh, his car, his entire car was like floating down the river. Yep. Whole car with him inside of it. Uh, luckily minimal damage. Uh, so, I mean, he basically just went in, hit the, I think a reflector and hit the water, but he hung up on a, on this rock under his car, like facing upstream with water up to the, over the hood, like kind of the windshield and was just sitting there, uh, up to about his waist in water. No so, shit. you know, we knew he was going to have some, some potential hypothermia, potential shock and, and being out there for almost an hour, man, like, uh, my head, I was already thinking like, what are we going to do when we get this guy out? Like we got to get him warmed up. But first and foremost, we have to get to him. Oh yeah. Oh, that's the so, scary thing about hypothermia though. It's like it, it rapidly deteriorates to the point if you're like hypothermic enough and you move somebody too fast, you'll throw them right into like a cardiovascular event. You'll like trigger totally. their heart to go into a heart attack basically. So uh, I don't know if it's AFib or if it's asystole or whatever it is, but I don't know. It's been a long time since I've done my AEMT stuff, but yeah, dude, it's sketchy. Hypothermia is sketchy, especially on someone who's at risk and elderly, elderly, right? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And and you start talking like those long time periods too. And, and you know, that's what we dealt with and I'll get to it, but like, uh, you know, your body stiffens up, your body isn't what you want it to be. And being, you know, assistant and we had to deal with that. Uh, so it was, it was cool there. There was already probably eight to a dozen people stopped. Um, one guy was driving like a semi and he's, he stopped, uh, some people saw him go in, which again, super lucky because where he floated down to was behind a bunch of trees. You could not see from the highway. So had somebody not seen him go in, there's a chance like nobody would have known he was back there. And then like, you know, really worst case scenario then, um, but one of the truckers uh, stopped and he actually drove down to the call box a couple miles, called it in and then turned around and came back. Cause he wanted to like, make sure the guy was okay and, and check on him. Um, you know, again, Jeff with the forest service and probably about another dozen or so p- people were there. Uh, they were talking to him, keeping him calm, making sure he was okay. Um, flagging people down, trying to find somebody with a boat, but it was a Thursday afternoon. The weather was kind of nasty. So there weren't a ton of boaters out yet. Um, and even driving up like the main section of the locks that we usually float, there was like no boats out, just kind of an empty Thursday. So, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I had everything and like as I'm putting my dry suit on, I'm like laughing to myself because like, what are the chances that I am in the right place, the right time, hopefully the right person with the right skills and training. Uh, and it's like, man, this is something I've, I've not like dreamed about by any means, but like worst case scenario plan for as I'm making the two hour drive to Missoula, uh, you know, late at night and stuff. And it's just like, man, I've, I've, I've ran the situation through my head. Yeah. This exact scenario. This is like something that you've trained for. I mean, you've done swift, you do swift water rescue, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's part of that is, uh, you know, we do a lot of float trips with a bunch of other fire buddies. We go international usually every winter. Um, and then even stuff here in the, the States, but, uh, just being like having that training to be prepared to, to have, more of a diverse skill set and be able to step in and help if it's needed. Um, like this is like the culmination of all that stuff. Like it's one thing to throw your buddy a, a throw bag or, you know, help your buddy uh, get unpinned off a rock, but to go like full on bystander, who's like not in a PFD doesn't want to be there. Like did not mean to be there on the river at all. And to be able to go in and assist was like super cool. Um, super joke, uh, 
stoked that I was able to do that. Yeah, man. And that's like no joke, dude. I mean, it's, let's, let's be honest here though. I mean, the Lock Saws are kind of a dangerous river. It is, it is not kind of, it is a dangerous river, right? Yeah. It's like people oftentimes underestimate water, like the American river over here on the West coast, like it's right down the street. I got all three forks within like a two hour drive for me. Right. People don't realize that those are like some of the very few class five rapids in the United States. Yeah. And people get like way, way sucked into it. They wildly underestimate like their own capabilities or like just the, the, the speed of the water or the temperature of the water. And they get themselves into shitty situations. That's people that do this stuff for fun. Right. That's like people that like going whitewater rafting. Totally. Yep. However, somebody was definitely looking out for the guy you made a save on because if he didn't, if he wasn't sawn, like if he wasn't seen doing the, uh, like going off the road and into the water, like there's a good chance that no one would have said anything or even noticed because you're driving totally. on the road, man. It's like, you can't like look and focus on two things at once. So he, he got lucky, super lucky. Yeah. And then you come along and make entry into the water, do your raft and everything like that. And you make the save. That's pretty incredible, dude. Yeah. And, and again, like a lot of the, the news articles and stuff, it's like, Oh, JT store, JT store. But, but first off, like the folks that are there talking to him and, and kind of like got us flagged in and, and and pulled into that situation like that's huge um i think mean, it's a it's a fairly remote piece of highway and the fact that you know it, it ended up being like 20 something people were stopped there helping by the time we had them loaded on the ambulance uh is awesome because you know like a lot of these things you can do with a big group of people trying to do it myself or two or three of us impossible wouldn't have worked maybe it would have worked but would have been super sketchy and like putting us at risk um but like the the teamwork that people threw into this was incredible um, you know, we had guys like, they're like, do you have ropes? Yep. I got ropes. He's like, all right, I'm going to go set safety down the river. Cool. Like that's taken care of. I can like wipe that off my plate of things to think about. Like a safety um, line, something that goes across the river so you can grab onto in case. Like, sure. It's, that- it's usually a throw bag. So like if, if I was to like lose my footing and start floating down, um, I, you know, I'm probably gonna swim to shore, but somebody can hit me with that rope bag and just pull me in really quick too. It just makes it simple. Gotcha. Um, I don't know shit about water stuff or swift water rescue. So <laughs> sure. Uh, more importantly is like if the driver goes down or if somebody on the bank slips in, like they have something they can get, um, you know, kind of grab that throw bag hope and that rope and get sucked back in. Um, another dude like grabbed my pack raft and I, I tossed him my pump and he like pumped it up. He had that thing pumped up, ready to go with a lion tied on it, like before I was suited up, which was again, like all these little things that eat time are now being mitigated by somebody else doing it. And and I can focus on like getting my gear on and the whole time, like I haven't even seen the car. I'm just running through my head. Like, am I just going to swim out? Like, do I use the boat? Do I go out and then throw a line back? Like, how are we going to um, do this? And one of the tenets of like swift water rescue is reach, throw, row, go. Uh, and that's really like minimizing the risk to the responder. Mm-hmm. So obviously you can, you can reach out to somebody awesome. If you can throw them something great, but there comes a point where like maybe the only thing you have left as an option is to, to swim out to them. And, and that's like last resort. Yeah. Because it, it's just the most amount of risk. Yeah. And so, you know, in my head, my first thought was like, I can swim out to this car. I can grab the dude. I can hold on to him. Somebody else can pull me in. Like we've done it in training. We've done it for messing around. Like it's something I know I can do but Hey, I have a boat and like the boat might like create some options for us. And so by letting somebody, you know, tie it to the boat, sorry, tie a line to the boat. And I paddled out to the car 
And now I have that like connection to the shore. Um, I kind of have like that extra option right off the bat. Yeah. And mind you, this is only the third time I've used my packer app. Like I just got it last fall. And so uh, we used it like twice this spring and then we've been using my big boat a bunch. So I'm not even super comfortable on the packy yet. You're still trying to figure uh, it out. Yeah. But it like, it was also like, I sat in there and I was like, boom, my full confidence. I've got this. I know what I'm doing. Let's make it happen. And that was like a really good feeling at no point during the whole thing. Was I like stressed out, feel like I was fumbling or doing anything, everything like slowed down and everything was very methodical. And it's crazy how like a little bit of training goes a long ways for any of these high, um, like high stress, chaotic environments. Um, so once I got out to him, my first thing was making contact and I was able to use my river knife on my life jacket, and like cut the airbag out of the way. So I could have like a better conversation with him. And I swear he looks at me, he goes, he goes, are you fire and rescue? I said, yeah, more or less. Ish, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and then I swear he looks past me and he looks at the bank. He goes, are you the only one? I was like, yes, sir. I'm the only one for right now. And he goes, well, are there more people coming? I'm like, yeah, man, but and they're, they're an hour out. <laughs> so, yeah, I was about to say, like, we're just like, going to do what we can for you. Yeah. You're in remote and country right now, dude. That's like, yeah, totally. Next level so, care is at least an hour, hour and a half away. Yep. So, uh, Jeff had gone through our dispatch and asked for uh, our mod to come up with a raft from our, our boat shed, uh, from the recreation like side of the office. Uh, just put like four of my guys through Swiftwater Rescue this spring because we're on the sailway and the locks off here. It might be a good thing for people to be aware of. Uh, so they're like, they're in route in, in the truck with the boat. We have firefighters from Powell, uh, office coming down and we're almost dead center between the two. So yeah, that's why is for anything to get there, let alone an ambulance. Yeah. Um, once I was there, I started talking to him and, uh, another guy from the bank, kind of a younger dude, uh, Keegan Fancher, uh, works down in Whitebird as a, as a shuttle driver for boats. Uh, he's, he's like, I don't have any whitewater experience, but like I can get out there and help you. And he did. So he was able to crawl in the back seat, and we kind of like, took a couple minutes trying to formulate a plan. Originally my thought was like, maybe we get him out the driver door or through the driver's window, but he was cold enough that like that just wasn't going to be an option. Just lost all the um, flexi flexibility in his body or was he starting to yeah. rigor up too? like hypothermia dude? Oh God. Yeah. And you know, again, like when I got there, he was very alert and oriented. Um, you know, had that, had a good conversation with me. Like I was like, Oh, I need to get some dry clothes on when I get to the bank. And I, can you grab my you know personal belongings and stuff? I was like, yeah, I'm going to come back for those, but we'll get them. Yeah. Your number um, one priority is patient. Yeah, absolutely. So with Keegan in the backseat, uh, we also looked at going out the back, like hatch of the vehicle. There's a little eddy back there, a little slack water that we could have used, but there's stuff in the back end, you know, no room hardly between the seat and the roof and the back and right. All right. Side door it is. And the way the car was on the rock and you can see it in the pictures, like that back door has just a little bit of water pushing on it. So we were able to open it and kind of put my back against it to keep it open from the and current. Kind of, you're, you're opening it into the current from what I exactly. Understand. Yeah. Yep. Um, so Keegan was in the back seat and kind of lifted him into the back and then I was able to kind of get his legs into the boat. And then the, the hardest part of the whole thing was probably getting like the main, you know, the rest of his body into the boat and situated without flipping it, dropping him in the water, uh, getting tangled in the ropes that we had, and, and it was like a little touch and go for a second there. Um, but like, once we had him sitting, it was like, okay, well like now we're, we're good to go. Yeah. 
Um, and we'd, we'd secured the boat, you know, again, we had the ropes to the shore, so people had a hold of it, but the boat was kind of like fumbling around in the, in the current. So we just put like a quick hitch in the, in the ropes, threw a carabiner on it and threw it to the, uh, the passenger or the driver's side seatbelt. And so when I was ready and the driver was in the boat, uh, I handed Keegan one of my spare knives. I had like three knives in my life jacket for like similar circumstances that you never think are going to have to happen. Uh, knives a tool, man. <laughs> knives, man. Got to happen. Cause you're going to drop one of them. The water oh yeah. A hundred percent chance you're going to drop something. Man. <laughs> Two is one, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, he reaches up, cuts the seatbelt and like away we go back to the bank and it was just a real quick, easy pendulum. Uh, I swam just down, downstream from the boat thinking like, man, if, if either one of them dumps out or let's go, like I can just grab them. And then hopefully you get the guy with the, the throw bag can hit me and we'll just bam, like straight to the bank. So, so you're again, not like, in the boat. You're like, nope. Pendulum them over you're, or you're following behind the boat just in case they dump or something like that or catch a rock and they tip over. Yep. Exactly. Makes it. Yeah. You can, yeah. Have another, uh, like system of check right there. They just, exactly. It's, it's more backups to your backup. Gotcha. Little systems of redundancy. That's the, that's what I was looking for. <laughs> Absolutely. Love some redundancy. Dude, that's sometimes. <laughs> right. Uh, and when we got into the shore, I mean, again, like there's 20 people standing there, like ready to help. By this time, Idaho County Sheriff's on scene, uh, Idaho Highway Patrol's on scene. And we like, w- while I was getting ready, again, like I'm, I'm thinking about the hypothermia and nobody else had sleeping bags. So I had a sleeping bag in my truck. So we had my sleeping bag and Jeff's pad. We were able to like pull him out of the boat, get him straight into the sleeping bag, like pulled off his wet socks. And then, you know, instantly there's like 10 people lifting him and dragging him through the, through the trees up to the pavement. And once we got him up there, uh, there was an EMT and a paramedic already on scene, not like from an ambulance, just passerbys. Mm -hmm. And they're like going straight into patient assessments. Um, you know, we've got people like, like helping carry the boat back up. Like all these things are happening at once. And and I'm still like kind of in awe, like how smooth everything went, which was great. Um, and probably within 10 minutes of him getting out of, uh, of the water and like being up on the pavement, the ambulance showed up. So Dude, like what? awesome timing. Uh, those folks didn't have to go in and try to like fight the current. And while they were like getting him on the gurney and stuff, I, I actually swam back out to the car again, uh, grabbed the driver's personal stuff that he wanted swam back with it and he was good to go and often went to Grangeville hospital. No shit, dude. All right. So I, I can only imagine like rope rescue, right? Like even the simplest like rope rescue scenario, it's a complicated process. It takes like an army of people that do certain things, right? That sure. you gotta be very, very specific with what you're doing. It takes time, right? <laughs> I cannot imagine trying to formulate a strategy with you arriving on scene making entry to the water and then having like a gaggle of like complete strangers that probably have no <laughs> basis in swift water rescue, but it's just you and your buddy just kind of delegating and telling what, pe- like telling people what to do and delegating some duties and then just making the save, coming back to shore, then going back out, grabbing his uh, PG bag or his personal belongings. Right. And then coming back. That's pretty damn cool, man. It's like a bunch of strangers came together and they have no idea what they're doing and you, they made it all happen. That's crazy, totally. dude. That's insane. Dude, it was, it was, uh, and again, like huge props to everybody that showed up there to help, like could not have done it solo by any means. Like I just happened to have the gear and even Jeff, like Jeff's a, a river ranger. Uh, he's got lots of experience on the river too. Just, he's like, dude, I, 
I don't have my stuff with me. I was like, Oh, I do. Like, let's, let's make this happen. And, and it was, um, when he called into dispatch, like, I have the dispatch log. Um, and cause I was curious on some times and he called in at, at like four fifty five, and he canceled all the incoming units at, uh, like exactly 30 minutes later. So it was 30 minutes from, from me getting on scene to canceling everything because the dude's loaded in an ambulance. So that's like super quick from my understanding of Swift. So fast. That's like lightning speed, like get shit done mode. Yeah. Cause usually it takes what you have to like, you have to stage out. I think I've seen like uh Reno fire do it because the Truckee river come through here in Reno, Nevada. Right. And I've seen them do like the training exercises and they're going to like stage out like, like areas for over a freaking mile of river or three quarters of a mile of river. And it takes a lot of time to set that stuff up, man. It's not a totally. fast process. So to get into the water, have resources inbound and then make the, make the grab in 30 minutes and have continuation of care on the way or him going to continuation care. That's impressive, dude. Yeah, it was, it was sweet. And again, like, uh, the, the, the speed, not just the speed, but like how smooth everything went. Um, I don't know how like everybody was on the same page, but like, and it, you know, I'm so used to being like as an IC, as an engine captain, as, as stuff like this, like I'm usually running the scene. Uh, I don't like medical stuff. So I was hiring EMTs so like they can deal with patient care. And I'm like, yeah, I'll call in the helicopter. I'll talk to dispatch, give updates. And this was straight up. Like Jeff already had that dialed. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, I'm going to go do like the, hands on the ground, uh, fun stuff. <laughs> I guess you gotta and do the fun stuff. <laughs> get, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's wild, man. So what the hell got you into swift water rescue in the first place? I mean, you obviously like whitewater rafting and all that kind of jazz. I mean, is that kind of like one of those things that pushed your passion towards doing, I don't know, some swift water rescue training and all that stuff? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I was in boy scouts growing up, like, um, got me Eagle Scout, did all that stuff. And, and with that, I got a lot of cool adventures outside. Like, um, so I started rafting when I was like 13. And I remember like my very first raft trip, I jump on the boat and I look at the oars and like, this seems easy enough. Like I can probably do this. And, uh, my scoutmaster, like I had a couple really awesome dudes and my mom was always involved with us and they were very into like letting us, uh, you know, kind of take the, the reins and, uh, you know, have those opportunities to grow and like experience things. And so, you know, like a three day float trip, I rode basically the whole thing, except for like one rap as a like class three, nothing crazy, but you know, I was like, it's pretty small and, and probably didn't like, was not ready to do that anyway. <laughs> um, and so I kind of like, again, I like kept that going, like, you know, one or two float trips a year, maybe through high school. And um, in college, I'd work through the fall doing fire as long, like as late as I could you know, have a little vacation for Christmas. And then I was going to school like January through uh, like May most of the time. Uh, but one year I took like a, a really short year. I did one term at Eastern Oregon university and like part time. And then that's that spring I took um, a bunch of S classes through like treasure Valley community college, central Oregon community college. And like really was trying to bolster my like career um, and get some of those classes thinking like, Hey, if I get these now and I like pay out of pocket, they, that maybe I'll not have to be stuck in class. And I can like go to some IAs in June when we all go back to work. Yeah. So it was like very selfish reasons, but also like what a good way to like get some additional courses. And one of the things that my mom had brought up 
she just like stumbled onto this uh, whitewater rescue class over in Eugene. And I was like, yeah, that seems like something that would be beneficial to me. And so I took that first one uh, with Rescue 3 and Eugene back in like 07. And, uh, you know, those are like skills that stuck with me ever since. And then they're usually good for about three years. And it's kind of like a red card. If you don't uh, show that you're doing something like it's going to be lapsed, you have to do it again. And so uh, the last 10 years when I was down in the Mojave National Preserve, we would deal with flash floods every year Mm -hmm. and like people try to drive across them and they get their car stuck and then they try to walk back. And then, you know, like it, we didn't have any like fatalities or anything crazy, but it's still like a, a thing that we had to be aware of and deal with. So, um, with the right amount of like justification and kind of bringing this up and, and showing that we have the stats that this is something we do, uh, I was able to go get my swift water training, uh, recertified up in Missoula last year. And, so like I was pretty fresh and, and that's really um, like a lot of it wasn't new, but it was great to like hear it from a new instructor to like test my skills, like get back into that, the rope stuff again. Um, and just kind of like, know okay. Like not only do I know this stuff, but taking the class the second time, I was like, I actually know this stuff and it's a good refresher, but I like, I'm not learning it for the first time, which is a good feeling, obviously. Plus that whole, like, I want to say it's kind of like, I'm I'm probably jumping to a pretty big conclusion here, but I want to say it's like the fundamentals, right? You can't beat fundamentals. It's like, if you want to learn something like I, I sit in on a, if you're a a IC five or a crew boss or something like that, just sit in on a, uh, like a firefighter two refresher or a firefighter one, uh, class. What is that? S two, whatever the hell it is. 131. (laughs) That's what it was. So S131, sit on that and see what's changed from the last time you went through it though. Because it's like, yeah, it's like riding a bike, of course, but it's still fundamentals, right? There's something to be said about that. But yeah, man, I mean, so you were able to justify getting trained, retrained back into Swift Water Rescue and you kind of applied it to a very real life situation. And I think it kind of goes to show that like these little training opportunities, especially people in a unique position like yourself or anybody who's in wildland fire, right? Like the stuff you do for fun can also translate to like real world skills, right? So if you're into medical stuff, if you're into like rafting or if you're into like, I don't know, medical stuff like trauma, right? Like you can make a difference. And I think there's a lot to be said about that, man. Oh, yeah. And even like, uh, I mean, mechanical skills, welding skills, carpentry skills, oh, hell yeah. anything that's not like specific to fire. Those are all skills that like, A, I probably don't have. And B, like what makes a better team than like diversity in background? So I'm so used to being at remote stations. Like I'm at a remote station now. The last 10 years is a hole in the wall, California. Um, and it's just been like if I have somebody at welds, like that's something that I don't have to worry about taking the truck two hours to town to get worked on. Uh, if we need to work on something in the shop, we need a new workbench. Like if I have somebody can do carpentry. Awesome. Yeah. Um, dude. So when people come to me and they're like, you know, what, what do I need to do to, to get a fire job or like what quals do I need? Stuff like if you can find a S one thirty S one ninety on your own, like you're, you're a step ahead, but like, I will put you through it. But if you have EMT, CDL, welding, you know, any, like, I don't like any non-fire related skill is still a skill that's going to benefit the team somehow. And, and that's one of my, uh, interview questions typically is like, one is like, what do you bring to the team 
from the fire aspect. And then the follow-up question to that is what do you bring to the team? That's like not related to fire. You know, what, uh, how, how are you fleshing out the team uh, to make us better as a whole, to make us more functional and more diverse? Oh, hundred percent too. Cause at the end of the day, I think wild and fire and just all, all fire and you know, the people that keep you safe at night, kind of uh, people, the, the guardian, uh, I guess, community, right? So I'm talking military, uh, first responder of any sort, LEOs, fire, EMS, all that stuff, right? It's, it's one of those, uh, professional problem solver kind of, I, I guess like careers, right? You have to constantly solve problems. Like, could you imagine how valuable a tire mechanic, someone who worked at like tires plus or like Les Schwab <laughs> for like two or three years came into fire and then they could fix your shit on the line. That's totally, that's super valuable, but this is like tangent, tangential skills, you know, that apply in weird ways, but when they apply in weird ways, when you absolutely need them, they become the most valuable damn skill in the world. Totally. Yep. Dude, and I love it. Like, you know, you go to, to whatever tire shop that you go to and you just chat with those guys, like make friends everywhere you go, talk to everybody. Oh yeah. The and relationship building, dude. Absolutely. But I've had guys who are like, man, like fire seems super cool. I just don't know how to get into it. And it's like, dude, here's my business card. Like, give me a call in a couple months. You'll have like a month or two to kind of like get a heads up before you fly jobs. And, you know, like providing those opportunities, like they don't always take it up, take it up on me. But, you know, like if I can offer somebody an opportunity to do a something that they're interested in, like fire and they're bringing some diverse skill set. What a good deal. Like, that's good for me. That's good for the crew. And it's good for the agency. Oh, yeah. Right. Like it's we're building from the, the bottom up. And that's so cool. Oh, absolutely. I have a theory about that. I'm, I'm a firm believer. I'm in the camp of, I guess, uh, the best firefighters are ranchers and fuck ups. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. but is there something to be said about that? Right. So like, yeah, if you're, we're all kind of a little bit of rebellious type, but I mean, typically if you're kind of like cut from that cloth, you have to figure shit out, right. You have to figure out a lot of things. You have to problem solve. And if you're a rancher, you're going to be in the same kind of boat, right. You're fixing all your own machinery. You're like figuring out how stuff works. You're I don't know, whatever harvesting, I don't know, have to fix a combine or I don't know, do a, a branding or something like that. You have to figure it out. And dude, yeah. it's, it's off-road driving and it's fixing stuff with bailing twine. Like those two skills growing up in Oregon and like hiring kids from the farm, that was very simple. Like I kind of knew what I was getting. And when I moved to Southern California, uh, we were getting kids from the city and like nothing wrong with that. Like, that's awesome. But I literally had kids that never been camping before on like our first fire roll. Oh no. And and like one of them is like a hot shot now. He's he works on Big Bear, he's a squatty, awesome dude. Um, but like that's just like you have to you might have nothing, but after a while you'll have everything. Oh, yeah. If you have the right attitude and you have the initiative to like get after it and, and kind of suck it up for a little while and try those new things. <laughs> Oh yeah, absolutely, man. And this is a, 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 I guess, a willingness to learn new skills too. I, I think that's a big one as well. I mean, if you haven't had the exposure to the outdoors and you jump into fire, well, you're going to get a crash course into what the outdoors are real quick, especially absolutely. wildland. But uh, I think that if you're exposed to that stuff, you know, throughout your early years, I mean, I think that's going to add to your skill set. And, and I, I hate it when people say to me, if they're like, even if they're getting out of fire, right. I hate it when they say that, yeah, fire is the only thing I've known. I don't know anything else. I don't know what I would do. I'm all like, dude, you can do anything pretty much. You, you can figure it out. Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah, dude. Uh, I've, I've had plenty of kids that I say kids, I mean, adults, um, you know, men and women who spent two years in fire and they were either like, 
I don't want to be here long-term. Like I'm here for a couple summers to pay for school or I'm here until I can go work for a County or I'm here until I figure out what I want to do. And like, that's awesome. And I'll work with that. But like my job is to give you some sort of cool skill set so you can go do anything. But like, all we do is manage chaos. Like that's all firefighters do. And 100%. like, I, I should have that on my resume. Cause I love that. You chaos um, manager type one. <laughs> absolutely. But you know, like we do do, we do so many different things. And especially if you have a crew leader or, or overheads, there's like, Hey, let's go find stuff to do. Like we don't need to just sit today. Um, we're going to go find a project. We're going to go help the archeologist folks. We're going to go help uh, the range techs put in this new fence. Like sometimes it sucks, but at the same time, you're building those relationships with other people and other uh, like parts of your agency. And you're also like diversifying your skill set, And, and that's all stuff that is applicable somewhere else. Like medical field teaching, it doesn't matter. Fire will set you up for success across the board. So it's funny that you say that too, because I, now I'm in tech. I mean, I'm a, I work for a tech startup and I used to be a wildfire. Granted that tech, uh, that, tech company that I do work for. It's called Burnbot. Uh, I'm their marketing director and uh, <laughs> it's in the wildfire realm. But if you want like a crash course in how to handle like the day-to-day chaos of like working in a tech startup, do a year in a hotshot crew. <laughs> like, <laughs> my buddy Simon, he's also, he's the ops director over there and he's actually been on my show a couple of times and he's all, he says the same exact thing. He's all like, yeah, dude, uh, if you want some like true skills that can pretty much apply to a lot of different things. Fire is like one of your number one teachers of those skills. And you'd be surprised. So like I said, man, I hate it when people sell themselves short and say they can't do anything else. Totally. And it's, it's important to remember too, like most people start out as like the firefighter two, Pulaski motor, uh, hose dragger. And that's, that's awesome. But man, you spend a year or two there and then the opportunities are literally endless. You know, if you want to go into tech stuff, like there's IT positions on teams, you know, the GIS side, um, the, the resource advisor stuff. If you're like kind of dip your toe and you don't love it, but you still want to be involved. Like there are so many cool ways to be involved with fire and, and just the all risk side of, of things as a whole. And again, like that can set you up. You don't have to stay feds, although I think it's a good opportunity. Um, but yeah, again, just anything in fire is, is setting you up for, for whatever's going to end up being next for you or retirement or, you know, whatever else, even like we have this running joke between my group, um, that do these raft trips together and they're about 12, 15 of us. And usually about 10 go on a trip per year, but most of us are firefighters. Um, most of us has jumped at this point and it's hilarious because we have a couple buddies who like are not in fire. Awesome dudes, super dialed at rafting, really get along with the group, but they always give us such a, like, so much shit. Cause they're like, dude, we pull up on the bank and everybody like lines out and you just like chain stuff to the bank. And like five <laughs> minutes later, everything is done. And they they always call it fire line. We're like, dude, it's not a fire line. It's a chain. And, uh, but it's so funny to see like that outside influence because like, we don't see it. Like we just step up, like you're used to a crew, you're used to an engine and you grab stuff and go. Yeah. And people from the outside, like of our realm are like, Oh wow. That's like really efficient. Like, uh, like you don't need to be told, like you need to be asked, like somebody's kind of like takes charge and everything gets done. And that's why like our group is so rad to go out with. Um, you know, if we have, uh, well, we literally had an emergency situation in Argentina this winter with a flash flood and it, it like blocked up the river that we were on like three hours into a 14 day trip. 
And oh damn, you know, like a lot of things are going on, and we're trying to figure out like, do we carry our gear to the to the hill? Do we secure the boats to this like rock beach that there's nothing to tie to? And you know, even the folks that weren't in fire, like they kind of integrated in really quick. And like we got boats tied up, we got gear moved really quick with a chain, and uh, and got everything to high ground. And like when the kind of natural dam burst, uh, they had been blocking stuff up. Our buddy like hit his whistle and we knew like it was time to get out and, and get to high ground. And, you know, within a couple hours, like things were kind of back to normal things had chilled out, but it shows that going from like a very normal, uh, standard day, like operation, you throw something totally crazy into it. And like, boom, like we adjust, we like make some tweaks on our operation and like everybody's safe. We have what we need. We have like our pace is already in place. We know how, uh, what's going to happen if like our boats go down the, the river without us. We're like, yeah, like we'll wait and we'll get somebody across in a, in a kayak and they can hike back to the camp. It's only like 10 miles. Um, here we have a sat phone. Like we have these things in place. It's really not that much different from fire in a, in a dynamic situation like that. So again, like awesome group to go with, uh, for those reasons. And, and again, like you can be out on a boat or out in the woods doing something and come across something and just, I mean, it's kind of like being at work again. It's things fall into place and you have that, that chaos management. Oh yeah. That rapid, like problem solving capability that firefighters have. Well, well, the thing that's cool though, it's like, like the, like the most, uh, I guess, extreme scenario for like a person that's kind of like a normal person, I guess you could say that like someone who's like experiencing like something kind of sketchy for the first time, they typically like, they get a little freaked out. And then you look at the fire, fire people over there and they're like, uh, no, let's do this. And we got this shit. This is, this is, this is nothing. Like, it's not a big deal. You can like, (laughs) you can handle like what, what normal people's like chaos is, is just like kind of mundane or routine sometimes for you. Yeah. It's funny. That's, I I don't know. It's just like one of those commonalities between wildland folks. Well, even in, in the wildland side of, of things, like you can see somebody that's been there for, you know, obviously somebody's been there a long time. They're in like, hopefully keep their calm and be, be very chill. But even take somebody that's like second or third year to like fourth or fifth year. And you can already hear that change on their voice in the radio. Uh, you know, or like you can see the, the, the wheels in their head, but they're like problem solving. They're doing their risk management and the things that they're like, uh, the blocks that they're putting together in their head, you know, maybe just a year before they would have done it, but it would have taken a while or they wouldn't have been able to communicate it as well. And so just like those little increments of time, just an experience like builds things pretty quick. And it's awesome to see, um, you know, people go from like the, the FFT two up to like the single resource level and, and how much they can change and how many more inputs they can handle and manage. Oh yeah. It's it, no, it's cool to see that development uh, cycle. You know, it's like, like you're saying, going from like firefighter two to like single resource boss. It's like the amount of stuff that's laid on a single resource boss. And we're not even talking beyond that, like division. I couldn't even no. imagine man, or an IC three or two or whatever above that chain. But yeah, it's, it's, it's a dramatic difference between the amount of responsibilities you have as a firefighter two versus a single, a uh, single resource boss or shit, even an IC five. I mean, arguably. Yeah, yeah man. It's wild. Dude, we always talk, uh, you know, one of the things that we've been really into, uh, especially down in at hole in the wall in the desert, because we, you know, we didn't have a ton of big fires. So a lot of type fives, a few type fours along the freeway and stuff, but we were really big into sand tables and, 
you know, like you don't have to get crazy technical with it, although you can, and that makes it a little more uh, like more buy into it, but just putting people in like the position above what they are right now, whether that's a, a second year dude being in charge of a squad or a, a FFT one being in charge of an engine, but put them in those positions around a table where you can have a little bit of dialogue and have an AAR and throw them like the really hard, challenging things and like make that the, the most dynamic environment you can think of. And then when you go out in the field, you can literally watch them like relax. And they're like, Oh yeah, I have these slides. I've done something similar. And like, again, like it's so cool to be able to see that and watch that, but being on the receiving end of that too, and, and doing sand tables and stuff. It's like, uh, I know it's not perfect. It's not like the, the real time all stuff, but I remember like one of the things I did here was like, I didn't do this or I did do that and I shouldn't have. And so you already have like some of those slides without ever having gone and done the thing on the ground. Yeah. And, and not only that, but the people that are ARing with you are also building the slides, even though they didn't do the thing. Oh yeah. So man, like the fire world with their RARs and uh, some of the redundancy we have and the training opportunities, like it's a cool, cool, like culture to be in. Oh, 100% dude. And you know, the cool thing about like a situation, like training scenarios like that, especially with sand tables is there's like a safe environment to fuck up in and learn from your totally. mistakes. Right. So that's good. Cause you can apply all those uh, things to like real world when you're on the line kind of stuff. And you already kind of know like what to do and kind of what not to do. I mean, every situation is going to be kind of dependent on the situation, of course. Right. It's going to be very uh, case dependent, but one thing that uh, will always stick with me is we had this sand table that was outside of fire, right? It was a small aircraft, like the whole uh, training scenario went with uh, the idea of like a, a small aircraft crashing and starting maybe a small fire or something like that. That's the only reason where really first person on scene, what do you do? You have a crashed aircraft and injuries. I mean, it kind of has something to say about that. Like, how do you handle that? It's outside of the box, right? But keep yeah. in mind, this is, this is the, the takeaway of that training scenario is that we're part of the ICS program, right? So we can be at any emergency. It doesn't matter if it's a shuttle disaster, hurricane relief, wildfire, COVID vaccinations or whatever. We can go and do that stuff. That's how we train. And that's something that always stuck with me. Yeah. You know, we went to uh, my first year with the Park Service 2012. We went to Hurricane Sandy for, for three weeks. And it was basically trash pickup on the beach. Uh, it was not nearly as, as glorified as uh, we thought it was going to be going as a saw team. But A, awesome networking. And B, um, like you said, going into the ICS structure, the people that did the best and had the best like um, operations going on were the fire folks. And, and nothing against LE and maintenance and everybody else. This is kind of a, a park service centric operation that I was with. But, you know, we had like, okay, like Joe is a task force. Uh, okay, well, where's the task force? Well, he's in charge of that carpenter. Okay, like that's not necessarily a task force. Um, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and so, and it was very, I mean, we saw a lot of that. And, but then on the, the fire side, like we had some Bay Actings Division that was from Lake Mead and some task force leaders who were from Lake Mead. And then we had our group that was kind of scattered from a bunch of different parks. And it was like very seamless. Like uh, the logistics stuff that we were doing was simple. Like, just the day to day, like get the safety briefing, go out and do work, have an AAR and like be done for the day. Very productive. And like day one, when we showed up, they didn't even have water for us. We're like, Hey, like where, where can we fill our water bottles or whatever to, to like go out and do stuff? And they're like, uh, 
here's like some like pint bottles. There's like eight of them you can share. I'm like, yeah, that's not going to work. So like we went out and bought water, like fire's just like falling into the, the side of things that a, we know what we're doing and B we have the capabilities to fill the gaps that a lot of people don't. And that's awesome. Um, and then in, uh, what was it? 2017 when, uh, Maria hit Virgin islands in Florida, ended up down there again, uh, just come off of fire in California, like basically laid my crew off and went straight to the VI. And I got there and they're like, Oh, um, you know, I, I'm thinking like trail crew stuff, right? Like, all right, I'm going to go as a division. I'm going to do trail crew stuff, take boots, be ready to like organize some people running saws, cut trails. And the ops there is like, do you have any boat experience? Like, uh, yeah, like I raft and kayak and stuff. He's like, how about motor boats? I'm like, no, none of that. He's like, cool. Well, we need a water operations uh, specialist anyway. So like, here's like two dive teams and eight boats that you need to schedule and organize. And like, also here's some people from the national office who are like writing a plan for Congress to get funding, to remove like all this wreckage off our, off the shore. And, uh, man, talk about going from like what you're absolutely used to, to the most opposite thing that you can even imagine. Yeah. But it's ICS, right? It's ICS 100, it's ICS 700. It just boom, easy. Like the, the folks working for me were they're, they're, uh, they're the subject matter experts. Like I don't need to be able to dive to be able to like sign their time and make sure that they're doing safe stuff because like they're telling me how they're going to do it safely. And if that makes sense, like, cool. Yeah. Do it, do it, do it that way. Um, so yeah, it was three weeks of basically being the the muscle on the boat to, to hand off buoys and hand off equipment so they could do their job and totally, totally unique experience. I never would have guessed I would find in, in the fire uh, career. Dude, that's wild, man. But that goes to show you, man, like the, the diversity and how, like, I mean, we we're very, like, we have a lot of, I guess, operational hierarchy built into like our mindset eventually over time. Right. And it translates to exactly like, like the stuff you're talking about. Right. I mean, you're well far removed from fire. In fact, you're on a boat. <laughs> so doesn't really get any farther from that. But I mean, it just goes to show you that uh, all of these things that you've learned over the course of your career or your hobbies or your passions or any of that stuff, like some weird thing that you learned, I don't know, in, in, in Eagle Scouts, right? When you're, when you're a scout, all that stuff translates to beyond fire, 100%. Totally. So let's talk about gear, man. So I understand you lost some gear on the, uh, on the, <laughs> on the save. <laughs> yeah. And I know there's a lot of people that reached out to you and, uh, I owe you a crisp high five and yeah. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> and, uh, anyways, so what is the, the kind of gear that you carry for this kind of operation? Like this, this kind of rescue, like I'm totally, I have no idea. I've never set foot in a, in a swift water capacity. So I have no idea. So explain it to me okay. like I'm three. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so first off I will start with, uh, I lost a paddle. That's all I lost. Uh, whitewater stuff tends to be expensive. Uh, and I, when I got to the boat or sorry, when I got to the car, I was like really trying to hold on and not like lose myself and have to swim back. So I let go of the paddle to like steady myself and I reached for it and it was already like squirting out from my grasp. I was like, well, there it goes. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go after that and like leave the car. I'm gonna, that's gonna look bad. So I'm just gonna stay here. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, again, like not a big deal. Like I know that's not like all the news things and it's like embarrassing. Like, yeah, I know I lost something like that, that was totally on me. So whatever, not yeah. a big deal. And the sheriff uh, offered to replace it. So oh, awesome. Cool. And I appreciate that. And I also appreciate like a ton of people reached out. I'm like, do you need to go fund me? Like, can I, can I replace stuff? Like, thank you for all those people that asked, but like sheriff's camp stepped up right off the bat. Good to go. That's cool, man. Yeah. That's super so cool. uh, gear wise, you know, uh, because it's central Northern Idaho, like when water's high and fun, it's cold. So, you know, building up from the base layer up, usually, uh, you're looking at like long underwear, wool socks, um, maybe an extra insulation layer and probably some fleece and then a dry suit. Um, you know, that's absolutely key. Like when we're out having fun on the weekends, like we're dry suited up because even if you're not flipping, you're probably just going to be cold because like it's spring, it's April. It could be like 75, one minute and then snowing, like literally 12 minutes later. Oh, it's kind of like Nevada so, with the bipolar weather. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> but farther North. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same for sure. Um, so, you know, so that is like the, the base layer. And then of course, anywhere you're at, even if you don't need the dry suit gear, uh, like good water shoes, uh, I like the toe protection. So a lot of my friends do sandals. My dude, like in the rocks and the cactus and stuff pass. There's nothing I I hate more than stepping on like a Lego of my kids or like (laughs) stubbing my toe on something. But you know what? Speaking of stubbing your toes, side note to this, you know what is an absolute war crime that no one ever mentions? Stepping on a Nyla bone that's been chewed up by your dogs. (laughs) Dude, that is like, oh my God, it's it's the worst. Makes like a Lego look like nothing. Anyways, I digress. Sorry about that. (laughs) So, uh, you know, some sort of good footwear, whatever. And then the actual, like the main gear that you're, you're going to see on Bay, whether it's, it's warm rivers, cold rivers, whatever is like a PFD, you know, your, your personal flotation device. There's a couple different kinds. Uh, the ones we use are, uh, like made for rescue. They have some pockets, they have additional flotation than like your just standard, like go paddle around for the day, uh, on a lake kind of, of gear. And, and it also has a quick release buckle on it. So like if you were to, to tie yourself to a rope, uh, or you tie your boat to yourself, there's a quick release. So if something hangs up, like you can just boom, pop it, cut away, you're out. Um, and that's kind of what makes, um, them more specialized than just a regular jacket. Yeah. This is not something um, you're taking out of the lake for wakeboarding. No, definitely like wildly different. Um, and then inside that, like, I mean, almost any river runner you're going to see is going to have like one or two knives. A lot of times it'll be like taped or clipped on the, on the outside of their life jacket for easy um, reach, especially in a, a kayaking or a rescue scenario, because like even just getting a lion, like out to you to pull you off a rock or to, to pull you in. Like if something gets caught up, like that's the most dangerous thing uh, in a rope rescue or, or any sort of swift water rescue scenario is hanging up in ropes. Um, and like that can set you up for drowning really quick. And the number two thing is, um, foot entrapments. So, you know, if you don't have something to lean on, like whether it's a paddle or a boat or a rope, and you're just trying to walk against the current, um, if you step funny and your foot gets caught and that current pushes you down, you're not going to be able to get back up if you're over like knee deep water. 
Um, and, and people die that way, like regularly too much force from the water rushing over them. They're kind of like yep. scorpion back and getting drowned at the same time. Absolutely. Dude. And, and water's pushing you down. So you're wedging your foot into whatever it's wedged into. Uh, so like when we swim to shore, stuff like that, it's like swim as far in as you can. So you're like, your butt's dragging, your knees are dragging. And then like crawl out on all fours until you're like, you know, you're less than, than shin deep and then like whatever. But so the knife is super critical. And this is something I learned actually in class last year uh, through Swiftwater Safety Institute, who, who teaches an awesome class. Um, our instructor's like, I have my river knife. It's on the outside of my life jacket. I only use it for emergencies. I've got a serrated blade inside my life jacket that I only use for rope. And then I've got another pocket knife I use for like peanut butter <laughs> and, you know, cutting stuff around camp. And so that was like, that was one of those like aha moments for me. It was like, wow, like I only have one knife and like, A, what if you drop it? And B, if you're using it all the time and it's dull, and then when you need it, it's not ready. Like that's, that's not efficient. And so that's why, and when I doubled up and well, tripled up on my knives. Um, and so it worked out really good. Cause uh, again, I was able to use like one knife to cut the airbag, was able to hand a second knife away to cut that, that uh, seatbelt when we needed to. And like, they were super sharp. It was awesome. And, and I still had like, my, I still had a backup. Exactly. Nice. And then beyond that, the only other things that are, are like pretty standard, uh, a couple of carabiners locking because, you know, working around ropes, uh, you don't want stuff getting like hooked accidentally. Cause like, again, you get hooked on something under a boat and you can't get out. Like you're, you're dead potentially, uh, especially if you don't have a knife and you can't figure out what you're caught on. Um, prosexes, pulleys, like there's a whole slew of like little items that you can, that you can use on the, uh, on the river in a rescue situation. But like the PFD, the life jacket, and then a throw bag is kind of like the other key item, which is about the size of a football. It's got rope coiled up inside of it and it's made. So you hold one end and you launch the other end, uh, usually underhand or overhand out into the water and try to hit the, the person you're trying to rescue or, or get close to them. And then when they, they, they grab that, um, you know, once they have a good hold and that bag kind of clumps at the end. So you have like a, a ball to hold onto, you're not just holding straight to rope. As soon as that hits and it gets tight, as long as you have a good spot that's wrapped, you know, halfway around you, or you had a blade off on something like that person's going to pendulum right to shore really easy. You don't have to pull them in, just let the water do the work. And, uh, it's, it's pretty efficient and quick. So those are like the main things that you're going to see pretty much any like solid river dude, uh, or gal out there with. And, and if you see like that, they have that stuff, you're like, okay, they probably have some idea of like what they're doing. Oh yeah. Hopefully <laughs> you would hope so. But you know, I mean, I'm kind of learning off you right now because I've seen a lot of similarities between like rope or like, uh, climbing and I, I, I'm even making the comparison of learning some stuff like water safety from like fly fishing or from you. Right. I mean, I'm a huge sure. fly fisherman and, uh, I'm like, I'm a huge stickler when I see somebody out there, like one of my buddies out there with their waders and no waiting belt. Because, sure. you know, you're trying to like choke down that point to where your waiters, if you do bail and go in the drink, that your waiters aren't filling up with water and you're getting dragged under. So yeah. it's like simple shit like that, but it's like, it like makes sense, I guess, it, I guess to like in my, my frame of mind, because there's a lot of similarities between the climbing and the fly fishing and the swift water and the ropes rescue and all that stuff. And I think they all kind of like play off of each other. <clears throat> oh, absolutely. Yeah. But I think also a big standout about this is that you were, I mean, do you carry your gear on you, like your river gear with you pretty much in the back of your truck, like all the time? Um, not necessarily, but, um, 
driving that section, like, like I said, I've, I've thought about it in the past, been like, wow, like what if I come around this corner and there's a car in the, in the river? Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to act? Like what actions can I take to help that person or like to help the situation? And so this year, like I've been kind of like boating on that side or boating back in Missoula. And, and so just, I just like keep all my stuff in my truck. Um, but now it's like, like consciously I'm like, okay, like my life jacket and some throw ropes at minimum, like stay in my truck. And that's like my helmet too, my water shoes. Like I might not have my dry suit with me, uh, like during the summer. Cause like, it's just not necessary at that point. But I, I do think it's worth having the other stuff with me. Um, just like you keep, you know, a, a sleeping bag and a first aid kit in your car. Yeah. Um, and, and also with that, like I said, we put some of my folks through Swiftwater Rescue this spring. We bought a bunch of, of throw bags. Um, so now like all of our mod trucks have throw bags in them and it's something that we can train on. And if we see something, you know, it, it might not be a, we pull up and, and go for a swim to save somebody, but you know, if there's somebody floating down the river cause their car went in, uh, Hey, we can hit them with a throw bag and hopefully pull them ashore. And it's something very simple, very low risk to us, but like very high reward, um, to that, that person, that public person that's like needs an assistance. Oh yeah. hundred percent. And I think that goes for just like any equipment. Right. So, I mean, I used to be an EMT, uh, or it, yeah. And that's well expired. I <laughs> did not do my respect <laughs> refresher. Anyways, I used to be an EMT and I still, to this day, I carry like this simple stuff. Like I carry like an IFAC in my truck. It's like easily accessible. Yep. You no, know, it's like stuff for like, uh, like, uh, tourniquets and wound packing material. Uh, even like the, uh, hyphen, the wound dressings for like a, a plural cavity. Right. I carry that kind of stuff. Like I'm just in my truck. Same thing with like yeah. what you mentioned with like the sleeping bag and the knives and the fire starter stuff like that. It's just like all kind of like tucked into where I know where it's at in case we get in a, situ- a situation that's kind of shit, then I can help like self-rescue. Or if I get into a situation where there's somebody else that needs help, that stuff's there. It's there for you. You can use it. You can help somebody. You can potentially even save a life like you did. Yeah. No, and, and I think the, like you said, like having that, that backpack, that go bag, like I have my, my 10 essentials, my fire starter, my headlamp, multiple layers of, of cold weather clothes. And it just lives in a backpack that lives in whatever truck I'm in that day. Um, you know, if I jump from my Ram to my Tacoma, like it throws in too, and it's with me. So I know right where everything is, everything's in dry bags. It's organized. It's like waterproof, which is, I realize a little anal, um, <laughs> but like, you don't want your shit uh, to rust. <laughs> That's, that's true. And like, you don't want your stuff to be wet when you need to be dry and warm. Yeah. Um, so like, there's reasons that like we, we put things in place and like everybody has those things that they do. And, uh, I think that like being prepared most importantly to save somebody else, but like, I would be very embarrassed if I like have to ask for help or like, I'm in a situation. I'm like, Oh man, like if only I had a rain jacket, but like maybe somebody else can hook me up. Like, no, that's unacceptable. So but if we're in the same situation and somebody else doesn't have one, but I have two because I overprepare, like, boom, now I'm helping out. And like, that's awesome. So I think being uh, overprepared, you can like get crazy with it. But um, to me, it's, it's worth having like a little excess because I, I do want to be prepared. And I don't want to be the person that's a, a hindrance to somebody else because I wasn't prepared. And I want to be able to help uh, whoever it is because I was. 
Oh, absolutely, man. And there's a lot to be said about carrying that stuff. I'm like, I'm not talking and I'm in the same boat as you. I'm not talking about like going like completely overboard to where you have this like overlanding rig that's like <laughs> packed full of like river rafting and medical gear and all this other survival shit. Cause you honestly don't need all of it. You don't, yeah. you can get away and you can probably make a lot of difference in somebody who's having like an emergency or even if you need to self-rescue and like, I don't know, say you gash yourself uh, on a rock while you're, uh, while you're boating. Like if you like have a severe gash and you need to throw a tourniquet on, well, there, there it is. It's right there. Right. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I, you don't need a lot. You can get away with just the bare essentials, like the critical life-saving shit. I mean, a boat's going to be a little bit different and the rope rescue stuff and all the uh, swift water gear. I'm pretty sure that's <laughs> going to be a lot different. It's a little, probably a little bit bigger than like medical gear, but still there, especially for the, the location that you're in, it was essential. Totally. You know, and, 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 Oh, so much of fire, especially in the West, like even parts of California, like, like we're remote, like we're remote, we're at least rural, if nothing else. And, you know, if you're down in, in San Bernardino County or LA County, like, yeah, County is going to show up. Cal Fire is going to show up. Like you have all these agencies that are going to come and assist. They're 10 minutes away. I mean, the helicopter is going to be there in two minutes, whatever. But you talk, start talking like central Idaho, Eastern Oregon, um, the middle of Nevada oh, yeah. and like who, who's out there, the forest service, the land management agencies are out there and that's it. Uh, you know, as far as like that, that public safety aspect of things and not that we should be the crutch for the state or the County, but also like the more gear we have that's ready to go and the more training and the more capabilities that we have, um, the more we can assist with whatever that thing is. And working for the park service in Mojave, like that was huge to me because there was times where we'd go to a vehicle accident and that person had already been out there for an hour or more when we got to them and, you know, law enforcement and medical still, we're still 35, 40 minutes out, maybe more. Um, like, so like, what are we going to do? Like drive by them or like, at, like, like now, like that's not really what we do It's like, no, if, if we're being asked to go and assist with, county or our law enforcement partners, like we're going to go and we're going to do something, even if that's just giving a good update and a good location, like that's something that they can work with. And it's just like a good fire size up. Like they know what they're getting when they're coming into it and they can start mentally preparing instead of like, like surprise, like here's an open door. And now you know what's there. Uh, I would way rather like know what's coming 10 or 20 or an hour, you know, 60 minutes out and be able to start running scenarios in my head and like figuring out what I'm going to need and all that stuff. So, and you know, anybody can do that. Like it's, it's an RPG. You can give it a size up on any situation. Oh yeah. <laughs> right there. Yeah. Right there. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, it, for the people that are just listening to this on the audio, I just like busted out my IRPG from <laughs> 2015. <laughs> I don't know if they updated them. They're like yellow now. Right. Yeah, we just got a new yellow one. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, that's the thing, though. I think that you uh, play into an interesting thing, too, with the topic of like training and actually like seeking these educational opportunities to like empower yourself to know how to do this stuff, one, and two, potentially make the difference in not only your own life, but maybe possibly somebody else's. And there's the opportunities out there are endless, and a lot of them are free. Like, take the, uh, uh, what is that, the Stop the Bleed course? The shit's mm -hmm. free. It's free. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what's, what's stopping you from doing it? It takes like, I don't know, six hours or something like that total. And that's going slow, but it's, yeah. it's cool. And you, can, you can get certified to teach it with like just a little bit more work. Yep. So like, 
you send one or two people from your module or whatever you have. And like now your whole module can have that, like when it's handy because a couple of people went and put in some extra hours. And like, now you have that as a, as an option. Oh yeah. And then it's going to like probably go down that ADHD like route to where you're like, ah, okay, I'm kind of interested in this. Now I got to like continue my education and keep building and building and building. And it's like pretty soon, you know, you're a paramedic or an AEMT or something like that, <laughs> but it's cool though. I mean, you follow your passions and if you like have something that like, I don't know, it's beneficial, whether that be like for like primarily or secondary, uh, like beneficial to what your passion is. I mean, f- fuck pursue it, man. Totally. Oh yeah. Never know what yeah. uh, difference you can make. I think there's, there's somebody said to you, like, again, like having that initiative and being able to like think up a plan, be like, okay, this is, you know, take swift water rescue. Like this is something that I would love to be able to do uh, for work would be great. Like, here's how I can do it. And now I'm, I need to like present that to the right people in the right way to sell it, but to sell it and show why it's beneficial. Like you can't just be like, Hey, I'd love to take this, but it's like, here's why it's beneficial to me. Here's why it's beneficial to the agency. And here's why it's beneficial to the taxpayer. And if you can like hit those points, uh, it's not like necessarily going to happen, but it's a lot easier for people to say, Oh, okay. Well, like that's a good use of our funds. You know, we only have so much this year for training, but like, that's a good point. And then like also training uh, is exponential, right? So if you have one or two people that take some class, even if they don't can't teach to like qualify people in that, there's still a knowledge base that can be shared within the module. And uh, you know, like now you have, it's just like first aid, you know, if you have one EMT and they teach some, some more advanced things, all of a sudden you have 10 people that can throw a tourniquet on instead of just one. Oh yeah. You know? So when the EMT goes down, now somebody can put a tourniquet on that guy because it's not just one person with all the knowledge. They've, they've shared the, the critical aspects of that. No different than switch water and throwing a throw bag or, uh, you know, anything that's involved with fire, really. I'd even take so, it a step further and say, going back to like the carpentry, the welding, the whatever, whatever you is benef- beneficial to your career and like you developing as a human shit, go for it. Watch the other people do the welding or the carpentry or hang drywall or I don't know, paint or whatever. I, mean, I don't know if about paint, but <laughs> it might be a stretch. Last, like literally uh, like last week we have a detailer that's up from Arkansas. Um, really cool dude. Like needs some FFT one time on a crew. I'm like, yeah, come on up. And then I have a second year firefighter who had a year on trails and, and she's like very crafty. She has like this incredibly diverse and weird skill set, but like is super into fire and camping and being out in the woods. And we were like, like she was literally teaching him and some other guys how to sew our new like crew patches on their packs. And like three days later, he was showing her like the basics of welding. Like that's the exact thing that I want to see is like people diversifying their skill sets. And again, if you have it and, and you can teach it like that, that teaching moment of something as simple as sewing or, or I mean, welding is not simple. That's why I can't do it. But <laughs> uh, you know, something like that, like that's going to make you a better teacher for other things too, whether that's in fire or in medical or, or teaching or whatever else you get into. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the fundamentals of like building leaders and building leadership into people too, is giving just those little options like that, which is, again, I was like, I just had a huge smile on my face when I walked out and saw this guy is sewing with her. And then the next day after briefing, she's like, can I come watch you? Well, like, I really like to learn that. Wow. That's awesome. 
Oh yeah. It has like a snowball effect though. I mean, once you start learning something and you've like that, that teaching thing, teaching has a snowball effect because if you're teaching something, chances are that that person that is the learner in that role, right. Is going to teach you something. And there's always that, that adage out there. If you really want to truly be a master of your subject, then teach it. There's a lot Definitely. to be said about that, man. Definitely. Yeah. I love, uh, you know, even the, the sand tables, like one of the things I'll do is we'll, we'll do sand tables all summer. And then at the end of the season, I'll let, let the crew give me a sand table and see what kind of weird stuff they throw at me. And it's, it's, it gets bizarre, uh, but I like it cause I like a challenge. Um, but it's, uh, it's good because like they're, they, you know, the tables are literally turned and now they have an option to, or, or the opportunity to, uh, get creative with things that they want to see how, uh, I might address and hopefully it's a learning opportunity or at the end of the AR, I'm like, man, you guys threw this thing at me and I had no idea how to handle that. But like, that's something I need to work on. Like I'm going to figure out what I would do in that scenario if that were to happen to me in real life. But again, like that's providing that opportunity for them to teach and to start getting like good at sand tables, which several years down the line when they're running a crew, they'll be able to put on a quality sand table. Oh, absolutely, man. And that's another thing too. I think, uh, going into it with like an open mind, right. And actually like trying to be open and receptive to that learning process. That's going to be one of those things that's going to take your education farther. It doesn't matter what it is, just being open-minded about stuff. And like, even like, I hate it because like firefighters in general, they typically hate two things and that's the way things are and change. (laughs) Oh man, no kidding. So having that open-mindedness and getting out of that old school thought of like, oh, this is dumb. It has nothing to do with fire. Like pull your head out of your ass. You never know. It might apply to fire somewhere or it could even apply to your personal life. Yeah. Oh, hundred percent, man. So what's uh, down the road for you, man? What's the future hold for you? Got any plans of like where you're going with your career? I mean, I know you guys are uh, getting dispatched here pretty soon. So yeah, uh, hopefully head up to Minnesota on Monday, which will be uh, my first time in the Midwest for fire. Nice. And talk, talking to the folks back there, the mosquitoes are real bad, uh, like Alaska bad potentially. So we'll see how that goes, but they're dry. So we're happy to go and, and help out. Um, hopefully get some canoeing in it's a little, as much as I'd rather have swift water. I will take flat water too. Nice. Um, yeah, just super stoked to get on the board and, and hopefully get the mod out a bunch this summer. Um, the mod life is sweet. Um, I was and like I came in last July, kind of like mid season and rolled straight into it and had a, a phenomenal summer. And I just like keep trying like the WFM is such a, like a diverse tool. Like you, it can be anything that the crew wants it to be. And I love that about it. Like you can be a little more uh, like diversified into like the fuel side or like suppression or burning or whatever. But the thing I love the most about it is it is like, almost a perfect cross between smoke jumping and a raft trip. Cause like you set up camp, uh, you just kind of like go out and do your thing for the day, whatever that like task happens to be. Um, so it is very like uh, single resource oriented. Um, you know, we can go out as, as two squads, three squads, a, a 10 person mod, whatever. But I think when it works the best is when you can break out like ones and twos to go gather situational awareness and gather intel and do the mapping, get the fuels and, and all these things and then reconvene at the end of the evening. And like somebody's cooking dinner and we're like talking about, you know, whatever map we made and like where the fire is going to go and what the critical things that we need to relay to the district or the team is. And 
you know, like it's, it's, you're literally just getting paid to camp and fight fire. Like how could it be any better? Like even more so than just any other fire job. And that's the thing too. I think a, a wild and fire use mods or sorry, wild, wild and fire mods. They've changed the, the terminology. <laughs> uh, and I actually did an episode with, um, was that John? Yeah. Freeman. I think he was, yeah, he was, uh, yep. he's the superintendent of a, a wild and fire mod. And I think it's a very underrated career path because you get to do all like the cool, like secret squirrel stuff. And a lot of people don't realize that you're like setting up like repeaters, like mobile repeaters. You're setting up like weather observation, like Ross stations and stuff like that. You're setting up like point protection, like uh critical, like you're identifying critical resources and uh, like basically formulating a plan for point protection. You get to yeah. like burn, you get to put fire on the ground. You could do a lot of stuff. It's more of like a Swiss army life. Whereas like a crew, whether it be a hotshot crew or type two crew or whatever, you're kind of doing one thing and you're putting in line. That's like your mission. Yeah. Right. So you got a lot, like you said, you have a lot of uh, opportunity to do like outside the box stuff. Yeah. And again, like I was learning last year and I have really exceptional uh, mid-level leadership in my crew. And so I would go to them and be like, Hey, what do we need to do? Like what makes sense here or stuff like that. But you know, you, you go and talk to a division or you go talk to a duty officer and they're like, well, what can you do? It's like, man, what do you want? Cause like whatever you're, whatever you want us to do, I will figure out how to do it. Like we probably have the tools for it and we definitely have the people and the, and the, uh, like the drive to figure out how to get it done for you. Um, and I, I hope that people will continue to use that. Like you don't have to shove us in the, the, the back corner of fire and like, take fuel samples and, and document rates of spread all day. Um, yeah, we have, we have sea fallers. Like we have, we literally have the forest blaster as my assistant. Oh, um, really? Yeah. That's badass. Yeah. Uh, the skill sets that we have packing, uh, like, like pack mule packers, um, you know, maybe not the number one most dialed people cause they don't do it all the time, but it's a skill cross cut. Um, man, literally like if you can imagine it, it's probably something that we can either figure out how to do, or we know somebody we can get a hold of um, through the forest or through one of the jump bases and probably make it happen. Nice. That's what I've never understood though. Is like, why is there like, I, there's like always like that, like chest pounding kind of bullshit that goes on between like different types. Like, Oh, you're a smoke jumper. Oh, F that crew. And there's the, like the hot shots and like, we're the best. Ah, and like, everybody's got that hoorah thing. And that's like, I understand it to some degree about like the, the crew pride and like being prideful about your crew and what you're doing and like the mission that you accomplished and all that stuff like that. But for some reason, man, like what is with WFMs and getting hate? Like what? I've never understood it. It's like, it's just another tool in the toolbox. they they walk to the fire, they take their shoe bruise, just like you. However, they just have a different skill set or and they're smaller than like a typical, like type two or type one hand crew. That's not rocking 20 people. It's usually like what, 10 to 12 people or eight yep. to 12 people. Yeah. And like, you know, it's eight to 12 people and we don't have to, like, we don't have the same um, requirements for like amount of returning people and, and not having first years and stuff. I don't think the module is a great place for a first year firefighter because uh, similar to jumping or, or probably repelling hell attack in you're, general, you're going to be expected to, to kind of go out and do your own thing and, and know what you're doing. But like, we have some of those people and we, we can like, we have the depth to take them under their wing and get them good training and, and, and set them up for success. Um, and I don't know exactly where I was going with that. I swear I had a really good point. Um, but the, I think the biggest thing is, is like, we are essentially half of a, of a hotshot crew I and mean, we're type one we are, should be able to do exactly 50% of their line production in an hour. 
And with that comes a, a bunch of quals that sometimes you won't find on a, on a shot crew. Um, you know, like I'm IC3 division, uh, task force, uh, you know, that the, the requirement is just task force RSB2, but to be able to basically, uh, take over like a type three fire in the wilderness and have the command and people that can run the logistics and keep people that can do the FEMO and the FOBs and people that are HECMs and like scatter out and do those single resource type things with 10 of us, uh, it fills a lot of, of gaps really fast. And that's like a really slick thing to have. Oh yeah. And I, and I love that about it. I mean, it's just kind of like have a, have a, a plane full of smoke jumpers. That's like a flying IC three team. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's that, but just on the ground, it's different, right? Yep. So it's a different yep. tool. It's a Swiss army knife, but God, man, what is what the hate? You know what I think it is, man? <laughs> I, I think people talk, talk like not everybody, of course, there's like a fair, there's a specific few people out there that like, that I know personally, they're like, ah, F and WFMs, you know, right. And they're all like, who are on pound of their chest about it. But I think it's widely because the lack of knowledge and what a WFM does and what their mission is. I think that's totally. what it is. I don't think right. it, ch- it changes. Like every two yeah. years they're like, Oh, Hey, it's not a fire use module anymore. Now it's a WFM and now it's, you know, whatever else. And, uh, and that's fine because again, I think that by not being just like, boom, you're a type one hotshot crew. Like, you know, if you get a shot crew, you know what you're getting. Mm-hmm. If you get a WFM, I think there's some, some diversity in that. And that's awesome. Like that's good. Like each crew should have, or mod should have their own like personality and the things are good at. Like we're probably not going to have a drone anytime soon. And that's, totally fine with me. There's other mods that have that capability and that's rad that they have that because they can do a ton with it. And they still have some other folks that go out and do the other things that need done. So like there's those skill sets. Um, like if you want to go like do point protection on bridges and cabins in the middle of any wilderness, uh, Selway is going to be pretty good at it. I mean, that's kind of the bread and butter being on the, on the Nez clear and on the Selway bitter wilderness. Um, go wrapping structures and stuff like that. Totally. Setting up sprinkler kits on bridges. Like yeah. that kind of thing is what the crew is experienced with and they're good at. Um, but just like taking an engine from SoCal and throwing them in a helicopter in Alaska, if you take us like way out of our element, it's going to take us a day or two to, to can't figure out what's going on. Oh shit, that's anybody. Exactly. And I think that the mod with the diversity in the background and the training that we're able to get, it, it does kind of help us integrate a little bit faster. And that's, and with only having 10 people, I think that's something that's a benefit. Uh, if we show up like on your forest or your district and you're not really sure what to do with us, like give us a good in brief and tell us what you want. Like, yeah, we'll figure it out. Oh yeah. But that lack of awareness and education, I think that people don't really know what it is. It's like, it, tell me what a, a, a fire specialist out of AK does. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever they want. Exactly. Good on them. <laughs> a fire specialist <laughs> is a Swiss army life, much as is a, uh, a WFM. I mean, it's totally, yeah. I mean, granted it's a, a fire specialist is a single person, but yeah, but I digress, man. But yeah, dude. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely pumped to hear your story and like get some kind of background knowledge about you and what happened that day. And I'm stoked that you made the save one. That's a hell of a job, man. So kudos to you. But also I, I like the message that you're talking about here with like the continuing ed and like not underselling yourself with your skills and then developing those skills off of each other, being the observer and then implementing the things that you learn from your folks around you, your network around you into like real life stuff with fire or even outside of fire, man. I'm all about that message. 
Yeah. And I think it's important too. like, um, you, you've got to advocate for yourself, right? Like 100%. you can't just be on the crew and like sit in the backseat every day and expect like, Oh, I'm going to get training and I'm, I'm going to get my FFT one done. And I'm going to be a IC four someday. Like you need to, and not by like any fault of anybody's, uh, you know, like supervisors or anything, but like you need to remind them like, Hey, um, you know, this summer I'd really like to work on my IC five and then maybe you get a couple and there's somebody else is getting some training back. Hey, like, um, if we get a chance, like I would love to, to get an opportunity to step up and, and try that this year. Or even if you don't have a task book open, just like, Hey, you know, like, uh, could, could I step into a sand table at some point and, and, you know, can I look at consider starting my task book later this summer? Like if you think it's a, a good time and having those conversations with your supervisor and, and reminding them, you know, as you go that, Hey, like I have a task book open. I can, I can jump in there and, uh, do that. Cause I, I see you don't have a trainee. Like that's gotten me a long ways. And I know like if, if, if I'm like, I seen something and it's going up the hill, like I have, my thoughts are going wherever they're going. And it's not necessarily like, uh, who the IC4 trainee is like on the other truck that just showed up. But if they come up like, Hey, I've got an IC4 trainee. Like, could we throw them in? Yeah, absolutely. Like, I'm going to say, yeah, because like, for one, we got to build that the program and that's what's beneficial for them is beneficial for me in the long run. Um, but like, don't be afraid to come up and ask, okay, like, can I step in and be your trainee? Like, I, I like that. Um, and that shows the initiative and it shows that you're interested in, and you're, you know, here for the right reasons. And you're not just like, Oh yeah, like I'll get it when I get it. Cause like, that's cool. Um, there's people who are totally happy with that and that's like good on them too. But if you want to like get those opportunities, remind folks that you're looking for them and then also like work your ass off doing them. Oh like, yeah. You can't just step in and, and be like, Oh yeah, this is cool. But like, I'm gonna go back to like sit in the back seat, like own it, like do what you need to do and do be good at it. Like aim to be as good as you can be. And people will recognize that and, and they'll appreciate it. Oh, hundred percent, man. And there's something to be said on top of like, you, you kind of alluded to it there, but uh, I think there's something to say to be said about someone who's willing to operate outside of their comfort zone and kind of push totally. to see where their, their boundaries are. Cause that's where you learn, man. hundred yep. percent. Dude. I, I mean, from the, the trainer standpoint, um, I was down in Florida one year and my friend was at IC4 under me. And I was like, all right, like you have this, I'm just going to like go over here and kind of like observe and like dig some line and whatever, but like you've got it, you know, do your thing. And, and I'm here if you need me, I'm not going to like let you hang yourself out. I'll be listening, but you do your thing. And then the joke became like, well, like JT's just going to throw you to the wolves. It's like, yeah, you're right. You know, like <laughs> uh, you're not wrong here. Um, I want to see that you can do it because if, if I'm going to sign you off, I need to know that the next time you're doing it and I'm not there that you're going to be capable to do it. And so like, remember, like I'm still in your back pocket, I'm right here, but like, I need to see that confidence that you have the confidence in yourself to do the thing that you're training for. Um, and, and I have a lot of stories like that where, where people were like, you want me to do that? Like, I'm going to be a division. I'm like, yup, uh, you are. So like, here's four or five engines. Good luck. Hit me with what you need and I'll be in touch. <laughs> you know, and, and people, people usually excel. I mean, they might not be the best task force leader of all time. We throw them in that, but that you, you don't have to be, you're a trainee. Yeah. You know, like that's what it's there for is to learn, to get better so that when you're qualified, you can do that thing safely. But like being qualified doesn't mean you're the best ever. It means you can do it safely and take care of the folks that you're supervising. 
Oh, hundred percent, dude. And there's something to be said about like the, the trainers that are micromanaging the shit out of you and like holding uh, your hand and directing every little thing that you do out of like fear of them making them look bad or whatever. It doesn't matter the reasoning, but there's nothing worse than that for, than that kind of person for the person that is the trainee. Like you don't totally. learn anything being micromanaged to death. You're probably gonna get frustrated and be like, this is dumb. Why am I here? And I've seen it and it sucks. But like the other side of that is, is having good feedback from the trainer at the end of that assignment and saying like, well, you know, like in the task book needs one more assignment. Dude, that, that's not feedback. That's, that's like the cop out that people want to take the easy way on a, on a uh, personal eval, like give good feedback to that person. And if they're not ready to get signed off, you need to explain why. Um, and if they already get signed off, even if it's their first assignment, like explain why they're ready to be signed off knowing they're probably going to have to have some more assignments. Um, but like, Hey, you know, this was a really tricky assignment and like it was, uh, very complex and here's all the things that they did well. And like, here's one thing that they can work on, but like, you know, they're, they're ready now, but they'll, you know, more will just make them better. Or, you know, this person has really tactically sound, but man, their communication's awful. Like they really need to work on, uh, communication by radio, communication face to face, give them something they can work with and not just be like, Oh yeah. Like they did pretty good. Just get more assignments. Yeah. That drives me nuts, man. Yeah. No feedback is like almost a criticism in itself. Absolutely. Like a, a negative criticism too. But yeah, man, I mean, that's another thing too. I think a, a lot of people that get freshly signed off on their task books, whether, I mean, shit, even like firefighter one, you get punched off on this and do you ever have people like when you're punching somebody off on their firefighter one, do you ever have people be like, I'm not ready for this. And you're like, too bad, bitch. Here you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to a certain extent. And there's definitely like the conversations that they get had during that. Uh, we just had somebody do this kind of a similar thing with, with firing boss. And it's like, you have all the skills, like you've shown us multiple times that you absolutely know what you're doing. Uh, you did it safely. You did it like very efficiently. Um, you're ready. And it's, it's that confidence in themselves that, that like they may not have, but like what better way to show them and to build that than be like, like my confidence is in you, your other people that signed you off, have confidence in you. Like we want you to be signed off because we know that we can walk away and you can run something. And Hey, guess what? Like the fire community is so rad because if you don't know something, you can ask, like, and even if you don't ask, somebody might see something and they'll just bring it up. Um, so like, if you have a question on something, you can always hit up me. You can hit up another single resource boss. Um, there's people that have potentially more experience, maybe even less experience, but have like knowledge in that thing that you have a question on. And it's like, it's just a tiny little blip in that day's operation. That's like totally reasonable. Like we all have those and that's fine. So, you know, being qualified, uh, especially when you have four or five assignments and like three or four people are like, yep, they're ready. They're ready. They're ready. Here's good at evals. Um, have that confidence in yourself to know, like, as long as I keep people safe and I do stuff by policy, like I'm good to go. And now I can build on that to like actually be an expert. Yeah. And that's another thing too, that, uh, I think that's kind of underrated. Cause I think a lot of people, uh, don't know, especially when they're like freshly signed off on their new task book and they're into a new role, they got their new qual on the red card. I think a lot of people don't realize that, that sometimes people sign you off like when you're ready, 
but you're not like an expert because you still got to develop that stuff. You got to, <laughs> I'm a peacock captain. You got to let me fly. <laughs> right. So you still yeah. got to develop those things. I mean, they're not, you're not uh, punching them off early per se, but you still got some work to do to become that, that subject matter expert, like that true professional of that qual. I think, I yeah. think it's like something that's not really said. No, and I think you're right. And, and you know, what's a good way to work on that teaching it. Like if you're qualified as I'm an engine in. boss, go do some, some engine boss, some 232 classes and like, like learn, Hey, this is a, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that I can be the engine boss, but like, how can I make somebody else an engine boss too? And then you'll start finding those nuanced things. And then you are like, well, on your way to being an expert when you can teach uh, pumps and some of that other stuff. That's so critical that, that you, again, you know, it's muscle memory for you probably at that point. Uh, conversely, if you've been a captain for six or eight or 10 years, you might be really rusty on some of that stuff because you got an FEO that's doing it. Um, so going back and teaching it and you're like, Oh yeah. Uh, hydraulics. Uh, it's that fundamentals uh, argument, <laughs> but there's, there it is, you know? And if you can, if you can refresh yourself every once in a while with that, um, man, it just keeps you that much sharper. And the things that you're, you've experienced by just communicating those to the newer folks, like they're getting those slides. So if you're in a class or you're working on whatever quality is like, uh, just having good discussions, like asking questions is huge. A lot of the PowerPoints that, that we put out for training is like, they're great. It's a good tool, but I think we get more out of having those open discussions and less out of reading the PowerPoint. Um, and because like the experience that I have and you have, and you know, everybody else has are all going to be different enough that the PowerPoint sets up. Here's the thing that you need to think about. But then our experience is like, yes, but also, and here's how that doesn't work. And here's how it does work. And man, the first time I went out as a fully qualified, this is what happened. And I was not ready for it. And it builds that, uh, you know, it builds some confidence, hopefully, but it builds those slides. And that in turn creates hopefully some confidence and the ability to, to deal with those, maybe not chaotic situations, um, maybe low chaos, mm-hmm. but the things that you're not expecting, even if it's minor and that's, man, that's, that's awesome. Oh yeah. And that's the whole thing too. I think you mentioned that well, cause uh, you, you, <laughs> you explained that a hell of a lot better than I did because it sounds probably like with what I was saying about being punched off, like, yeah, you're qualified, but it seems like you're not all the way qualified. That's not what I mean. That's what I'm talking about is what you're talking about. Totally. what you're yep. saying there. It's like, yeah, you are proficient. You are skilled. You are safe. You are capable of doing this job, but you might need some ass kickers of assignments and you got to build your own slides without somebody else like providing overwatch. Basically you got to figure that yeah. stuff out and that's what makes an expert. And, uh, yeah. Oh yeah, dude. If you're conversely, like you're saying, if you're not necessarily retired in place, but if you're a captain for those like six to eight years in a row and you're losing skills, you need to refresh those man. hundred percent. Like the day you stop learning something about a subject is the day you should probably quit. Cause if you've learned yeah. everything, what's the point of doing it anymore? So yep. dude, it's, it's, there's ways to stay like engaged. Um, you know, my 10 years at Mojave, it, it was kind of like rinse, repeat a lot of the summers with, you know, single, single bushes by the freeway <laughs> out when we get there, going to burn to sand. Yep. Yep. It's another one. This is the 35th one this year. And, uh, we know what it's going to look like and we know right where it's at. Cause there's three more down the road from last week. Um, but with that, like, again, the, the training opportunities, um, 
I got out to do a, a battalion chief detail in uh, NorCal one summer. And that was awesome. Like it basically made me learn that being a captain is awesome. And being anything above that has the ability to not be nearly as fun. Cause you don't see much fire, <laughs> uh, way less IA. Uh, I got to go jump for a year and that was phenomenal. It was like back to the basics of rookie, get a saw and dig, uh, or cut and or dig and, and make coffee while you're at it. Um, <laughs> And, and like, that was, that was refreshing, but also like, uh, I think my third jump, I was an IC three. So as a rookie, like that was a pretty cool thing to have, but, um, like I could put like my full depth of skill sets into this new thing that I was doing. But the other days was like, cool. I get to go just dig line again, which was actually very refreshing after several years, a decade as a captain. Um, and even just get down details, like, uh, going to the Southeast for the winter, man, I had, so much fun in Southwest Florida burning with the park service down there and the fish and wildlife. Like my first RXB two training assignment, we did 10,000 acres in an afternoon. Holy like, shit. You will never do that out West. No, no matter no. where you are, that will not happen. But like what a, an exceptional experience for me to be like, wow, this is uh, a lot different than I'm used to, but man, like you can build a lot of slides out of something like that. Oh, and, and that, that kept things fresh. So uh, yeah, I was in one place for 10 years and, and I was a captain the whole time, but like finding those opportunities and, and chasing them down. And, and again, like bringing up to overhead and be like, this is what I like to do. And this is how I like to do it. Um, there are ways, including grants, uh, through at least the park service. And I'm sure other agencies too, uh, to do that stuff. And, and the, the training aspect, at least on the park service side, I know, like they pump some money into folks being able to get out and do details and do classes and do that kind of stuff. And that's a, that's a great opportunity to take advantage of. Oh, hell yeah. I mean, we'll look at how much advanced like rescue stuff they do, that they do. They do short haul, they do all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean, they've got a short haul ship in, uh, I think Yosemite, yep. I want to say, and then one up in, I think Wenatchee, is it Wenatchee up there? No. I'm not sure what North Cascades has, but uh, yeah. I know uh, Grand Canyon has one too. Yeah. And they do some pretty, uh, pretty outside the box stuff when it comes to like your, uh, like what most people would concern, what most people would, uh, consider like standard wildland fire operations, you know, they get to go outside the box a little bit, but that's all making the program bigger, better, faster, stronger. I mean, that's huge. Yeah. And that's one of the fun things I learned. Um, well, it wasn't a fun thing I learned, but the thing I learned when I got to the park coming out of, uh, like several years of BLM was it's, it's less of a land management agency and it's a little more of a people management agency. Um, you know, like we have the law enforcement aspect, we have the, the, um, the visitor center folks and all the interp rangers and, and they were much more worried about like the people doing things in the park than like the timber. I mean, it's the desert. There's nothing out there to manage, uh, like timber some wise, flower blooms though. <laughs> oh, there is I have a lot of Joshua trees to burn up. Turns out, um, but like those kind of things, like. And that's where it was like, okay, we need to focus more on like first aid. And like, if we come across a wreck or go to a wreck, like how do we manage traffic? How do we manage our safety to close off roads and, and get people stabilized until the helicopter gets there? And like, so those were things that just through being in the right place at the right time, forced me to kind of like learn new things and then share that with the folks coming in behind me and, you know, my seasonals and stuff like that. Uh, and that, that was one of the things I really enjoyed about being at the park was, man, we would get called and like living at the station calls 24 hours a day, potentially. And you really didn't know what you were getting into. Sometimes, um, it might just be a, a you know, somebody stuck 
or it could be like a single vehicle rollover with people ejected out all over the place. Uh, a lot of weird stuff in the desert. <laughs> Dude, I live in Nevada. I, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. No doubt. No, I think there's a, a lot to be learned about that too. And I, it will, a lot to be said about that. And I think that the learning component of that is what's going to accelerate your career and like taking those opportunities and taking that risk to like get outside of your comfort zone and seek those training opportunities and just be hungry for quals and being a better human. I think that's going to take you pretty far, a lot farther than you think in your career than just like taking quals as they come. It's seriously hundred percent, yep. dude. But yeah, man. No, but I appreciate you being on the show, man. And uh, we're coming up to the end of the show here. I actually got a hard stop here in about 15 minutes or so, but uh, we're going to do a little bit of an episode debrief here. But before we go, uh, I always give the opportunity for you to give a shout out to some homies, heroes, mentors. Who do you got for us, man? Okay. So I've got a couple. Um, When I first started, I was 16 with Oregon Department of Forestry as a student worker. And I, I didn't know that the state was different from the Forest Service. Uh, or that there was BLM or that there's anything except the forest service. Um, and Gordon Foster senior was the unit forester at the time. He worked with my mom. Uh, they'd done engine academies for region six together. And you know, it's sometimes it is kind of who, you know, but I went in and did a job shadow with the state cause it was something different. And he called me about the time I uh, got out of school that year. I was like, Hey, we have a, a spot open. Would you like a job? Like, sure. Um, so he kind of like got me started early, uh, in the, in the fire career. And then, uh, after you were Steve, eight years old. <laughs> yeah. After that one. So I was 16 is twice as long later. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but Steve Jolly and Dave Meyer were the, the assistant unit forester and the, the lead forest officer. And they like really instilled like work ethic and, uh, like we work for the taxpayers. So like everything needs to be nice all the time and you work all the time. Like you don't get to sit down and hang out. Like you can sit down for 15 minutes on your break and your lunch. The rest of the time you're like mowing the lawn, raking gravel, paint and stuff like sharpening tools, you find stuff to do. And that was exactly what I needed. Like coming into my career, uh, at that like teenage level. Um, so I, I can't thank them enough and for giving me like really solid opportunities to grow even when I was like 18, 19, 20, um, awesome, awesome shout out to those guys. And then, um, Jay Walter, uh, really awesome dude. And, uh, he signed me off on my division. We were down in Florida and just like, again, weird, weird place, weird time, weird, uh, operations. And I learned a ton from him. And if I have questions or, uh, you know, concerns or something, he's one of those guys, like I still can call to this day. And, and we stay in touch with his texting the other day. Um, actually apparently about this, he saw the one of the news articles. He's like, I know, I know that guy. <laughs> so, and then, uh, Jordan McKnight also. So he was the FMO down at uh, big Cypress swans down there. And I'd still like, he's up here in region one now at the regional office. And I pick his brain probably more than, than he wants. Uh, he's also the WFM, uh, kind of like overseer, but he, he was huge and get me, um, kind of settled in last year. And I, I really appreciate the help that he's given me. Um, Greg Overacker, uh, racks as a lot of people might know him, uh, 30 years on Stanislaus and soup. Uh, he's still on our, our, uh, instant management team down in California team 12. Uh, I think this year he's, he's actually going to just be on call and not rostered. But my last couple of years as an ops two trainee with him, I have learned, uh, insane amount of things. Uh, 
some of them are hysterical, but I mean, a lot of really good, like old school mentality, but like with the new school thinking of like, you take care of your people, you get a job done and, and you do it right and you do it safe. And I, I love that. And so I've just a few assignments I've had with him have been exceptional. And, uh, I think lastly, uh, is James Aragon, who was my, my FMO down in California desert district when I was at Mojave. And, uh, I could usually bring these like crazy ideas to him, like going to Florida and going jumping and, and stuff like that. And, you know, we'd usually have to talk it out a little bit, but he was very supportive of me doing that. And that was huge. And now he's the IC of the team I'm on. So that worked out very well. Um, but yeah, tons of everybody's helped me, um, you know, get to where I am. I want to pass those experiences on to the folks coming up and, you know, I got a lot of good deals in my career already and I want to make sure that we're, we're getting other folks good deals and getting them those trainings and the opportunities that I had. Cause that's, what's going to make like a bunch of, a bunch more competent, solid, uh, career firefighters. Hell yeah, man. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Don't ever change. Don't get salty. <laughs> it's really easy to get salty. Don't ever get salty, man. But I appreciate you being on the show, man, and sharing your subject matter expertise and like your story for your career and the rescue and being prepared and all that stuff, man, especially the leadership and how it ties into education, taking those risks, man. That's good shit. More people need to hear it. It's inspiring, man. I appreciate the hell out of you. Cool. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. All right on JT. Uh, yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Hope everybody right, have, have me again. Anytime. Anytime, brother. Anytime. And boom, there we go, ladies and gentlemen. Another episode of the Anchor Point Podcast is going to be in the books with our good friend, JT Sword. JT, dude, that is one hell of a story, man. That is freaking cool. And it just goes to show you that uh, with the proper training, the proper gear and proper knowledge and just kind of being aware and all that jazz, well, you never know what may happen and you could end up being in the thick of things or you can end up even saving a life. And it's pretty cool, man. Definitely dig your story and uh, yeah, uh, hope that you get your 250 bucks worth of gear back, but uh, sounds like you're already covered. So if you want to find out more, go hit up uh, JT uh, on the old gram. His at is wildsore. So that is W-I-L-D-S-O-H-R. That's a screen name on the old Instagram. So if you want to hit him up, well, hit him up. Maybe ask him some questions like, hey, what's the best place to get swift water training? What's the place for this gear? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, you're going to gain a lot of knowledge from this dude. So hit him up. Anyways, hope everybody enjoyed the episode. And it looks like, uh, like, looks, like I said, it looks like the uh, lower 48 is heating up. So be heads up. Remember, complacency kills. Don't get complacent. Anyways, hope everybody's doing well. We'll get you on the next one. Special shout out to our uh, sponsors. We've got Mystery Ranch, purveyors of the finest damn packs in the fire game. Head over to www.mysteryranch.com. And while you're at it, check out the Backbone series. We've got Hotshot Brewery. Kick-ass coffee for a kick-ass cause. Go over to www.hotshotbrewing.com and check out their full line of morning making essentials. Yeah. And uh, we've got the ass movement, our good buddy Booze over there. He's uh, fi- uh, spreading the words of poo bearing propaganda. So if you want to help spread the word about bearing your turds, go over to www.thefirewild.com and check out the ass movement. And last but not least, we have the Smoky Generation, a.k.a. the Wildfire Experience, American Wildfire Experience. And yeah, go over to www.wildfireexperience.org and check out all they have to offer, including the Smoke Generation. Bethany, you have a kick-ass organization over there. Keep it up. As for the rest of you, you all know the drill. Stay safe, stay savage. Peace. <laughs>